Hey everyone, it's Hannah here. Before we get started with the show, I'd like to ask a small favor of you. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, I want you to pause this episode right now, but be sure to come back in just a minute. Go to our show page and give us a rating or leave us a review. Ratings and reviews help other people to find our podcast, so we rely on your feedback to expand and make the show bigger and better. Okay, that's all. Thank you for listening. Now back to the show. You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. Hi, I'm Dr. Jenny Cross, and I am a professor in the sociology department. My specialty and expertise is in studying um, community and team dynamics. A couple years ago, I was presenting at the Team Science Conference, and I've been going to team science conferences since 2015. And at some point along the way, I realized that I've really been doing team science since my first day as a tenure track assistant professor. I was asked by the chair of the department to teach in my content specialty, which is community development. When I was given this class on community development, I thought this is the perfect place for us to use sociology to serve the community and for students to get to know what are the solutions that people are doing. That first year, I had 50 students in my class, the very first time I ever taught this class. And I thought I was going to ask them to help me make a plan for how to engage a whole class of students in working with a community partner to create solutions. So I told the students about our land grant mission and the importance of working with community partners and using science to serve community needs. And the students were so inspired by that, they were devastated when I said, well, I don't actually have a project yet this semester. And so they found a project and their project was working with the food vendors in downtown Fort Collins who have business on the weekend nights, you know, late at night. But those food vendors are looking for more opportunities to use their carts to bring in business. And they thought, oh, you know, if we could have access to the CSU campus, we could be, you know, serving food to students and that would expand our business. And the students brought this to me and they brought even one of the food vendors to come and talk to class to say, why would they like to expand their business in that way? So students were really excited by the idea of having food cart vendors maybe all over campus. And so they said, hey, Dr. Cross, this meets the definition of community development. It's meeting a community need, both for the people on campus and for the business partners. And I said, yeah, it does meet the definition for community development. So the students said, great, let's do that as a project. And I said, all right. If we think about how could we expand food offerings on campus with local food vendors potentially being part of the solution, what would we need to know? And the students self-organized into a whole variety of teams. One group um, got the clickers that you used at athletic centers to count people. And they plotted all the main access points around campus. And they staffed every one of those access points for 10 hours a day for a whole week. So from 7 a.m. on Monday until 7 p.m. on Monday. And they counted how much traffic was coming in from all the different places. Another team took a map of campus and walked around campus and asked people to point onto the map where they would like to see a food cart vendor that they would go to. Another group surveyed people about what kind of food they would like to see food cart vendors delivering. Another group sent out an electronic survey asking people where do they get their food so that we could get a handle about like what the food opportunity on campus was. Are people eating on campus? Are they skipping meals? Are they eating out of vending machines? Are they going home to eat? Are they eating at the businesses on the perimeter? Really trying to understand what was the need and the opportunity. Another group worked on a business plan. So the students, 50 of them, organized into small teams. Each part contributed to the larger story, but each one had their own specific task and the students did an incredible job of, you know, using social science research methods that they've learned in their other classes. So in that class, I got schooled by my students how to build a big team science project. Team science. That's the topic of the show today. And we're talking to CSU's resident expert on the topic, Dr. Jenny Cross. She is a community sociologist, 
a public speaker who presents on topics like teams and behavior change, and a professor who teaches courses on applied social change, community development, and sociology research methods. Now, if you've listened to this podcast in the past, you have heard us mention interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary research, working in silos, breaking out of silos, and it's because teamwork is essential to research in 2021. The best solutions to a problem are discovered when scientists from a variety of backgrounds work together. Each one adds an important perspective to the table that another person doesn't have. It's especially essential to solving the world's greatest challenges, like climate change or maybe a global pandemic that we're all living through. And yes, of course, what some would call an aging crisis, this unprecedented rise in the proportion of older adults relative to younger people. So today on the show, Dr. Cross teaches us about the science of team science, why humans work better in teams, and how research benefits from a transdisciplinary approach. We learn how teams of people foster innovation, how they communicate effectively with each other, what their relationships are like, and basically what makes for a good team. We also bring back a project you heard about a few episodes ago with Dr. Deanna Davalos and the Enriched Environments for Healthy Aging Brains project. Dr. Cross is a collaborator on that study, so we get into why a team was useful when devising a project that aimed to find therapies for reducing cognitive decline in people with dementia and their caregivers. So, I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. And so this, this, you know, class project that you had and you oversaw this concept of team science that you kind of executed there is now your area of expertise here at CSU. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how you kind of found your niche with it? Yeah, I didn't become an expert on team science on purpose, but it really started before I was even a faculty member. I had been evaluating a project in the community that was a big public health project that required collaboration between the school district, um, mental health services, child protective services, law enforcement, and juvenile justice. And they all needed to work together to really work on preventing violence in all of its different forms around the community. And we were doing um, these community network studies about how those agencies were building trust with each other and building new relationships in order to create new systems for preventing violence. And I um, studied those teams using social network analysis and thinking about how their collaboration grew over time. How did they build a trust to work with each other? How did they build new programs that they couldn't have created alone? So that's what I was studying before I even became a sociology faculty member. And then um, through the years, I continued doing really community engaged research. That's what I've always done and was working with the school district. And I then got excited about studying a new group of transdisciplinary teams, which are building designers that include, you know, interior designers and energy guys and um, engineers and contractors and looking at some of the really innovative school buildings on our campus, um, on, in the school district's campus and in the world, I discovered that this was, you know, just another really interesting place where people with really different experiences and backgrounds are trying to come together to build new community capacity. So that, that kind of core of bringing diverse knowledge together is what I studied in design teams and it's also what I studied in public health projects. And in 2015, I saw a flyer for this conference, the Science of Team Science, and I thought, oh, this is just the same thing. It's just another version of it. Scientific teams are also trying to study a problem that they can't study by themselves, and they can only do it if they bring together people that come from different fields 
with different experience and different knowledge. And that can be a really challenging task to learn to kind of share knowledge and create a shared vision and figure out a goal to work towards together that everybody can get behind. So that it was 2015 when I went to the first conference and presented about design teams and how the principles that create successful buildings are also the principles that create successful public health collaborations and also the same structures that make scientific teams successful. Right. And and so the reason why we're excited to be talking to you about this topic today is because at the Center for Healthy Aging, we have this huge team science approach to the projects that we have. We're crossing, you know, different departments at CSU to come up with these projects. And so I'm curious to talk to you specifically about academic teams. And, you you know, we have these shared qualities between teams in, in different sectors, but specifically, you know, what's unique about the academic team? So I'm wondering, you know, a place to start with that conversation is, can you paint a picture for us of what research was like maybe 30 years ago, 20 years ago, versus what it is today in terms of, you know, team science and how it's evolved over time? Yeah, there are a couple of kind of trends in science that have been co-occurring. One is that in, let's just call it traditional science, scientists, you know, think about how do we advance knowledge in this field? What new things in the world are there to be discovered? And then build a research plan to solve and answer those things. That's been shifting towards thinking about what are the problems that society has and how do we solve those really complex problems? That's what scientists are being tasked with right now. Another strain that's been happening in universities was first this movement towards service learning, which was trying to connect the academy really to the community and thinking about what can students learn in the university from their experiences being out in the community. And one of the most advanced forms of that is what I've been doing in that course that I told you about, my community course, which is community-based research. So you're not just volunteering for an agency to kind of learn through observation and experience. You're actually really trying to take the tools from your field and use them in service to help the mission of whatever organization you're working with. So in construction management, we have a class here at CSU um, that goes and builds um, projects for community partners and that class is called CM Cares, Construction Management Cares, and that's using their construction tools to help local agencies. It's different, you know, they're building physical structures, but it's the same as what my students do. They're doing evaluation and needs assessment in order to support the mission of a local agency. So there's been a lot of great scholarship on service learning and community-based research and what it means for academics to be in partnership with community agencies. At the same time, scientific teams, whether they're doing community-engaged research or not, have realized that they need bigger teams and more diverse teams in order to solve these larger problems. And so those two streams came together in my class and I'd been doing team science for years before I realized that that's actually what I've been doing and teaching my students to do in the classroom. So as scientists, the trend we see is that a movement away from, especially in some fields have a tendency to um, have scientific publications that are only one person or two or three people writing those publications. And now we're seeing bigger and bigger teams um, working on problems and articles and things together. And so that's a whole new way of doing science, of doing it with a really large um, collective, or even in sociology, it's different to be, have most of your publications have five or six people on it instead of only one or two. Right. And it's, it's a theme that consistently comes up in conversations of you know, gone are the days of working in your silo. I've, I've heard a scientist tell me, gone are the days of me just going in my office and shutting the door and working on a problem by myself. Um, now we're, we're kind of in this era of scientific research where, like you just said, we're crossing disciplines because, like you said, the problems are becoming more complex and it requires more perspectives involved in, in coming up with those solutions. Yeah. 
and also more diverse sets of tools. <clears throat> One of the collaborations I'm working on for team science is with some of the um, statisticians and computer scientists down at the, CS the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. And they really focus on building new tools for visualizing data. So they're working on a new tool for me to visualize the relationships between team scientists so that we can you know, get new insights by having a new tool to look at data from. And I don't have the time or energy to learn how to do that, but that's their expertise. And so even a small new partnership with people from computer science or statistics helps me do my work better because I have data and questions and they have tools, um, but they're looking for you know, a question to build a tool around. So even those small collaborations that are really across disciplines are helping um, to solve these kinds of problems and answer new questions that are separate from just sociological questions. Mm -hmm. And team science is more than just this idea of people from different disciplines coming together to work together. There is a whole science of team science, as you've mentioned, that studies the qualities of these researchers, like what, what makes a team scientist. So can you take us through some of those and, and what the, what the literature says on the topic? Yeah, this is one of the things that's really fun for me. I've always been a really interdisciplinary scientist. I'm, I've always been interested in questions that are outside my field that bring topics together. And there are dozens of fields that study teams. So communications studies teams. There are people in the field of creativity studies. So we see them in design schools. They ask the question, what helps teams be more creative? Um, people study team effectiveness in organizational settings. All of those fields come together to help us explore the science of team science. And that kind of begs the question, how are scientific teams different from other teams? Are they the same as research teams in industry? Are they the same as design teams? You know, I was saying, oh, I see that crossovers, how design teams and public health teams and science teams are the same. And they're the same because they're large. They have usually over a dozen members. They're the same because they're complex. But scientific teams are also different because in organizational settings, people in their jobs usually are a member of one or a small handful of teams. Most scientists are members of many teams. So my many teams include this small teams that's working that's working on team science networks and visualizations. And so that's part of my team science studies, but it's a small team that's working on that. Then I have a larger team that's been working on um, building healthy environments for the aging brain. And that's a really transdisciplinary team. And it got formed to answer a community question. The community partners said, we wanna bring arts and connectivity and social connection to people with dementia and their caregivers, can you help us research whether or not what we're doing is making a difference? And answering that question, is what they're doing making a difference, is actually a different question than the scientists have. Scientists have a more specific question. Their question is, can what we're doing there be better than prescription drugs? Because dementia is one of the places where drug therapy is actually not helping. So the science question is, does social prescribing make more of a difference in people's lives? The fun thing about transdisciplinary studies is that each discipline has its own question so that people in psychology might be interested in the social prescribing, improve cognitive function, or maintain you know, a more even cognitive function and reduce the decline. But my colleague who studies um, caregivers and relationships is really interested in how certain kinds of events and partnership help maintain the bonds, you know, between a pair. So those are two different questions from different scientific fields. They can be answered in the same large study and they all can answer both those bigger questions. Does social prescribing have a bigger impact than pharmaceutical therapy? And does it make a difference? Is it worth our community partners investing their time and energy? Can they get fundraising support for it, right? So that's the magic of team science is that it can answer questions for individual fields, it can answer big science questions, and it can also answer community-oriented questions. But scientific 
teams and scientific team members face all kinds of constraints that other people don't, which is that we're simultaneously trying to build research teams. We're trying to train students at the same time that we're building research teams. We have lots of other job duties and we're juggling many, many teams. And universities don't have the same kinds of infrastructure and organizational support. You would never build a big investigative team in industry without a designated project manager who has a line item on your budget and a staff position. Scientists are always trying to figure out, oh my gosh, who's doing that? Are we hiring a grad student? Do we need a postdoc? Is one of us doing it? And so the institutional support that we have to do this complex work really hasn't caught up to the time. So the way universities are organized is to support me to spend time in my office thinking about solving problems. And so scientists have to be trained to think about their teaming and training and education in new ways. Mm -hmm. I think that's an, an important point that you raise is that we recognize we have these complex problems that need to be solved, but at the academy it has not brought itself up to speed. Yeah. In the field, the science of team science, we talk about team science competencies, which are what are those skills and abilities and capabilities that you need in order to work on complex teams across fields. And the folks that have been studying that have identified that there are actually three different levels of competencies that we need. There's individual competencies, which is my own willingness and readiness and interest to work with people across fields. Some people really just want to work by themselves in their office. And there's absolutely a place for that in science. There always has been and there still is. But there also are people that want to work across fields, like my friends at the CU Anschutz campus. They want to build tools that have application. And they're so excited to work with me because I have data and questions from the community. So there's that individual level. How interested and ready are we to work? And then there's teams. Teams take time to form, to learn, to share language with each other. That the way I might use some, a really simple concept like the word model might not be the same way that my engineering friends think about what a model is or my economist friends or statisticians. And so we all have to learn each other's language and what are those words that each field has defined separately and differently so that we can learn to talk to each other and not think we're having understanding, but really we're not having understanding. So we have those individual competencies then as a team, how do we build our ability and trust and language to work together? And then the third that we were just kind of hinting at is the organization, how have institutions built capacity for people to work together? And that's part of what I was saying is missing. In the community-based research field, I'm able to only do so much in my one class when my students all work together on a project for a community agency. But the best community-based research is through ongoing partnership. And there's very few of those on campus. At CSU, there are a few programs that are really long-term projects where people in a department are bringing students, teaching students, building students' skills and ability in a particular field, and also partnering with an agency for the long term. So one really good example on our campus that's an award-winning program is um, Campus Connections. They partner with local agencies. The agency says, we have all these at-risk kids and they really need mentoring. And human development is teaching students about how do, how do people develop? How do young people develop? And mentoring is an important part of all human development. And so they built this long-term partnership for mentoring where college students get to mentor youth in the community and that's meeting a constant community need, but it's also building those specific skills that students in that field need to build. And so it is that ideal, perfect partnership that both provides service in the interest of building community and building skill and competency among students. But we need infrastructure for that. We need staff positions that are coordinators. And if we think about the university as a place that has teachers and researchers, you know, coordinating programs isn't really what faculty get evaluated on. So that's a place where we see that the uni universities need new positions and new strategies in order to maintain those kinds of long-term partnerships. Yes. Yeah. What I, what I'm 
hearing you say, like we're, we're talking now about, you know, institutional obstacles to team science and, you know, preparing students to tackle complex problems. But what I'm also hearing us kind of verge onto is this translational gap a little bit of, you know, often in scientific teams, huge issue that you run into is we have all these great ideas, we're developing these great solutions, but we can't get them out of the university setting. We can't get them into the real world where people can actually use them. There's a lot of reasons why that happens. Money, grants, uh, you know, all the, the intellectual property things that you have to think about when you come up with a new invention. But I, I kind of want to get your take on, there is a difference between doing team science and doing, you know, transdisciplinary team science, but having translational science as well. There's a difference between the two. Yeah. Because you, you're talking a lot with, it sounds like with your students and what you do is a lot of that community involvement and a lot of taking the the knowledge from students and, and using it in the community, but that doesn't always happen. Right. It is, you're exactly right. There are two different ideas. Transdisciplinary is um, a term that people are just beginning to use and really know what it means. There's multidisciplinary, which is studying the same phenomenon from a a bunch of different disciplines, but you may or may not ever integrate those together. Interdisciplinary is where people from different disciplines are all trying to work on the same problems and they're sharing some expertise between them transdisciplinary, when we really make it to that highest level of of work, we're able to actually ask new questions. When we learn each other's language and are studying uh, our complex problems from multiple perspectives, we, once we get to know each other's tools, then we see new things that we can ask questions about and we can form new research projects. And that's really the goal of team science is to move us from being in our silos and kind of thinking about the same topic in ways that never touch to really, you know, merging our methods and saying, oh, when I hear you talk about this, it helps me see new things that we should be, you know, looking for and trying to understand. And that's part of the fun of it. Um, So that's transdisciplinary science. Translational science also has a really specific definition in the academy, which is where we're trying to take basic scientific research and translate it out into the community specifically to solve problems. And good translational science usually is transdisciplinary, that you need people from multiple disciplines. Sometimes you can do translation that's just in your silo, but a lot of the best translation, especially if we're thinking about health and healthcare, really does require multiple perspectives, like um, the healthy aging brain group that has um, music therapists and cognitive psychologists and people from the communications field and sociologists really thinking about the dilemma of how do we help support and reduce the societal impacts of the aging population and dementia. Um, we see new questions and new opportunities because we're working together and we're all you know, sitting around the table together. So translation, you know, is trying to do two things simultaneously. It's trying to really answer the need in the community. So the need related to aging is that the aging population is growing really rapidly. And as long as people are taking care of and having caregiving responsibilities for people who are aging with you know, an increasing number of Americans facing dementia, that places a real toll on individual caregivers for their health. It shortens how long they are able to work. It's really common for caregivers to retire early. And so that's a loss of both kind of personal satisfaction and fulfillment, as well as a loss of really talented expertise in the workforce. So that's what makes it a societal problem and not just an individual one. So solving those problems really require not just teams from many disciplines, but also teams who have the ability to talk to and engage with community partners and think about the issue or problem from that perspective and think about solutions that are both 
you know, kind of doable and scientifically sound. And not all scientists really want to do that. Like we were talking about the individual competencies, right? There are all of those individual and team and institutional ones. And um, that's part of what makes team science both challenging and fun. Right. Right. You, you're burgeoning on the the Center for Healthy Aging and why we do what we do. And it, it, it is what you've mentioned that we have this aging society that's just going to keep growing. I mean, we're going to, there's going to be double the amount of older adults. I believe the statistic is by, by 2060 and the world is just going to keep having more and more humans and a growing population. And when you think of the strains of where that will be in society, you think of things like healthcare and the way that we do work. And if we're living longer, that gives more opportunity for us to have multiple careers over the course of our lifetime. I don't know, multiple marriages, multiple generations of children, like lots of different things will occur. Um, children becoming caregivers for their aging parents, all of these food, food and water scarcity issues that we talk about too. And so there, there are these these complex problems that are happening from different vantage points that are all going to, you know, converge at some point. Yeah. And all these different fields have a different role to play. So one of the transdisciplinary teams I work on is the one that's really thinking about how do we support a healthy aging brain? How do we do that through community connections? Part of the fun of that project is thinking about what's the role of the arts in maintaining people's activity and social support and connectivity. Um, The stories that come from that project are just so inspiring that people talk about. Um, And I think all of us now are more aware of this um, living in the pandemic. You know, one of the things we learned from that really early on, we were hoping that the chance to go out and engage in community music performances would improve people's mood. give them the opportunity to feel as though they're normal again. And we have such great um, quotes from our participants talking about what it means for them personally, but also what it means for their relationship that they are have that chance to look forward to that we discovered that the impact on people's mood starts in the middle of the week. If they know there's a concert coming up on Saturday, on Wednesday, people start looking forward to it. And for at least a full day afterwards, or maybe two, people are still kind of a little bit kind of living in that memory in that moment of like, that was really fun. They're still thinking about it. And so in that way, it's not just improving people's life for a day or for two hours while they're there. It's really improving their life for four or five or six days, you know, before it and after and around it. And we were surprised by that. We didn't know it. So that's one of the ways where science grows because we're working with community. We asked what's the impact on mood. We had no idea that the window on mood was six days. But now thinking about COVID, right? We've all been like home alone and we're missing those opportunities. And now when we do something kind of out of our routine, we notice that we look forward to it a couple of days. We notice, oh, I'm still happy for two days, right? Whereas before that kind of ebb and flow of excitement and expectation and reflection was so much a part of our lives. It was taken for granted. We didn't notice it. But now that we've missed it, we see it. We're like, oh my gosh, I got to go outside for a bike ride with a friend and it was safe, but it was different. And um, I really enjoy that. So we you know, just learn so much from that, that when we think about what these teams learn, they're always surprised by what they learn from their connection with other teams and also surprised what we learn from participating um, with the community. And it's those happy surprises that help move science along and help us seek new directions, you know, for thinking about the big issue about the aging population, it helps us even think about new team members to invite and what the next set of questions are that help us dive deeper into um, solving those problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I want to, I want to kind of divert us for a second, because when I was reading some of the science of team science literature and, and reading some of the qualities of what a team scientist is, I came upon this finding from some research that I wanted to get your, your opinion on. What is, what is this point of women increase the collective intelligence of a team? Can you please, please tell me about this? Cause I'm very interested. <laughs> yeah. So this comes from Anita Woolley's lab and she's been studying teams in a variety of settings. In 2010, she published this first article about it. And the question about collective intelligence is, can we predict which teams will be successful? What tells us about a team's collective intelligence rather than individual intelligence? And there are lots of ideas about that. Like, let's just add up everybody's individual intelligence. Let's just find the smartest people and put them all on a team. And what we discovered is that the best performing teams are not predicted by um, any measure of individual skill or individual intelligence. Good teams are predicted by how teams relate to each other. So that was the first finding of what collective intelligence is, is that collective intelligence is how teams work together. So then she you know, dove into that a little bit more. And what she found is that there are a couple of behaviors on teams that really improve team performance. One is even turn-taking, that everyone on the team is given an opportunity to participate. So this means you don't have one person who hogs all the air and hogs all the space and drives every conversation. And then the other is social sensitivity, which is, you know, that ability to practice and reflect on and notice what other people are thinking, right? This is what we do as professors in the classroom all the time, where I was reading the classroom and looking for when students are nodding and following along or when they're sitting still and they have a questioning look on their face, right? You know, they're not getting it, but they might not have their hand raised. So on a team, Social sensitivity, noticing when people are feeling awkward or frustrated or questioning, you know, gives you the opportunity to say, oh, hey, you look like you're not following the conversation or maybe you have an idea to contribute. Not everybody has the same level of comfort interrupting a conversation or saying, hey, I have a really great idea. So good teams teach people and, and people practice paying attention to how everybody on the team is feeling what people are thinking and making that space and room for everyone to contribute. So those are kind of the hows. So now back to the question, why women? Why does having more women on your team improve even turn-taking and social sensitivity? And that's those are both really gendered topics. If you interview women and talk to them about what they think is a good exchange, women will tell you they feel uncomfortable when a social exchange isn't even. If one person shares a really vulnerable story, another woman doesn't feel comfortable if she doesn't also share something else about herself too, right? That that's part of offering social support is saying, oh, I know how you feel. I've felt that way too. Men don't always feel like that. They don't, ne they don't necessarily feel uncomfortable if social exchanges have been uneven. And then um, women are, as a group, are a little bit better at reading social cues and catching what's happening in the mood in a space. And so if they care more about and they feel uncomfortable when exchanges aren't even, and they're better at reading the mood, bringing more women onto a team generally tends to elevate the capacity of the team for social sensitivity and its drive for even turn-taking. Now, this is not to say that individual men might not be really sensitive. You know, some men have really high relational um, IQ. They really are attuned to how other people are feeling and what they're doing. And I've seen many men, many men on scientific teams. And in fact, some of the best teams I've seen um, are led by men who really are committed to even turn taking and really cultivate that. There's some really specific practices that people engage in, which is every time they take a turn, 
they acknowledge the person before they say, oh, I'd really like to add on to what Sarah had said before. I'd like to elaborate this in this way. And then when they finish, they actually turn it back to Sarah and they say, Sarah, do you think that I like characterized that right or mischaracterized it? And in that way, they're both like giving good credit and not stealing the floor. Um, so that's what good turn-taking looks like. And so men absolutely can be really good at it, but as groups, uh, women are better at it and do it more often. And so adding women to a team tends to improve how people relate to each other. And that's why we see um, higher proportions of women improving the productivity um, and uh, outcomes of teams. Well, as someone who likes to think of myself as a self-proclaimed feminist, I love to hear that. And also, I feel like I kind you kind of suspect that a little bit uh, as women. I feel like we when we're in rooms with other women, we we can see the power of having that perspective. Um, and, and so I just love to see that there's a line of research that kind of finds something along those lines as well. Yeah, our own research is exploring this topic even more because we want to move beyond, you know, this finding that it's the proportion of women, but to dive a little deeper into that question and to say, well, how how are women behaving on teams that really contribute to this? And some of the newest research on the science of team science really shows that people's social relationships, so people trust each other, they seek advice from each other, they receive mentoring, they have fun together, they like hanging out outside of work. We see those social support and social relationships actually predict team collaboration and productivity. So what we're finding in ours is that having um, women leaders who are kind of the center of the mentoring and advice and social support network is what's associated with really effective teams. And we see that the men who are the center of really effective teams also display those same things that students report really receiving good mentorship from those men and having really positive relationships with them. And so then we're seeing whether you're men or women, um, strong teams have central figures that are really engaged in these socially supportive roles. So um, it's fun to be able to build on that uh, stream of knowledge about women predicting more effective teams and then looking in the detail, how do women improve team function? Mm -hmm. I think it's not just this men versus women differentiator, but it also sounds like why it's important to have a diverse group of people in a team and diversity obviously means a lot of different things, but, you know, I, when I was a graduate student in communication, we talked a lot about the cultural, culturally centered approach where you in, in health communication. So this doctor patient relationship, why is it so important to have black doctors treating black patients? Because white doctors have not lived the same experiences as black people. So obviously a black doctor is going to be able to understand better and relate better. And, and so when you're talking about these big complex issues that require different people from different backgrounds, you need to have those people at the table having a voice. Yeah. You know, diversity is the, the secret to team science, but it's also, uh, it's its biggest asset and its biggest risk. So that research on um, innovation and creativity on teams finds that diversity in all kinds of things. So diversity in age, diversity in career stage, um, socio-demographic diversity, age and gender and race, but also just lived experience, uh, disciplinary diversity, all of those many types of diversity are what is part of makes translational teams really successful, but it's also that diversity that is the biggest risk. And what we need to, part of the thing that we need to build for team science is the ability to learn to connect with and relate to people who have different experiences, who come from a different perspective, who bring different language and expertise. And so that's really the biggest task of team science is building our ability to be open to to listen to and to collaborate with people across difference. I don't think that's unique to team science. I think that is a national lesson that we need to learn right now. <laughs> it's not. 
not unique to team science. It's true for all teams that diversity when well managed is the engine for creativity and innovation. And without the skills to be open and to listen and to really understand what each perspective brings is what um, prevents our ability to be really high performing. Mm -hmm. Right. So I want to ask you these last couple questions that I, I have in mind. I always ask people who come on this podcast, since this is from the Center for Healthy Aging, what is your best advice for healthy aging? But before I get to that, because you're, you know, this expert on team science, I'm curious, what is your best advice for working on a team if you had to list it out? Yeah. So my best advice for both of those things is the same answer. So my best advice for living a good life, my best advice for having a great team, my best advice for healthy aging is that it's all about relationships. Human beings are fundamentally social creatures. And we all have learned during this pandemic, as we watch kids struggle to learn at home, we're being reintroduced to the idea that learning is actually a social event. Learning is not something that we do by ourselves in isolation. And so teaming is when we get to learn with other people and we actually do that in relationships. So as human beings, we grow, advance and learn through social interaction with other people and building relationships where we trust other people and we feel cared for is what helps us learn better. It's what helps us perform better on scientific teams. And it's what helps us age well. That's one of the flaws of our society. I once listened to a talk by a really brilliant Italian sociologist. And she said, you know, we've built a society of silos. We put kids in schools with only their own age group. We put um, elders in Uh, retirement homes with only their own age group and human societies actually evolved with all of us interacting with people over time. We're starting to see these great um, quantitative studies that have demonstrated the really important role of grandmothers in um, the success of societies and of the success of individual people. And that's about, you know, the roles that elders play in um, supporting young mothers and in supporting children. And so she was saying, it's not enough to teach people to be good teachers. It's not enough to teach them to be good police officers. It's not enough to teach them to be good social workers. We need to teach everyone in all of those institutions that part of their job is to find new and better ways to break down the silos so that human beings have more opportunity to interact with more people and more diverse people and to feel connected and valued in meaningful ways. So I think that if we learned anything from the pandemic, it's that we've all seen the many ways that we lose out when our social interactions become limited and constrained. Right. This is why this is like a core core tenet of the human development and family studies kind of area of the academy is social connectedness is so important. I mean, there is a difference between being alone and being lonely. And 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 the people who, you know, even if I have like me myself, I have friends that I don't talk to all too often, but I still know that they're there and I'm not lonely because I know I can call them at any point in time. There's a difference between that and people that are super super isolated. And so it's, it's just so, and we talk about it for healthy aging all the time of why that's so important to know that you have people in your corner that you can call if you're feeling a certain kind of way. Yeah. And that's the big, that's the biggest thing that we found for caregivers in our healthy aging team is that as they face more and more challenges, caring for someone with dementia, their social ties shift and We actually all need the opportunity to do both things. We, as human beings, thrive when we are able to both give support and receive support. This is why the mentoring relationship is part of what predicts the success and team success. And, you know, mentoring happens across 
um, age groups, right? As you know, an older faculty member, my students are mentoring me in new technologies and new analytic techniques. And I advance as a person because of what they teach me. We as scientists advance because of what we learned from the people that we were studying when they told us that their mood improved over six days. We learned as scientists. And the caregivers in our study told us that part of what was really valuable about um, going to the V-Sharp program was their opportunity to give and receive support. And we thought they just needed to receive because they're giving lots of support all the time as a caregiver, they're giving support, but actually they also need to be able to give in meaningful ways to share with other people on the journey what their tips and tools are. And that's what makes life meaningful for them, that they're able to give something that other people receive. And so I, in all my studies, I keep being reminded about um, those things. One of the measures that we look at in the science of team science is reciprocity in learning ties that people on both sides say, I'm learning from you and you're learning from me. And so that's students in our classrooms, in my community-based research class, I have the highest level of reciprocal learning ties between my students than in any class that I teach. But also on our scientific teams where we see reciprocal mentoring ties and mentoring really is about learning. When we have reciprocal mentoring ties, we see some of the most um, successful teams. And when we talked to caregivers, they said, when I'm giving and receiving support, I am the happiest. So we see that it's relationships that are what drive both our individual happiness and probably health and well-being, and also what have teams be more successful. It takes a village, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> it's what it comes down to. It takes a village. Yeah, it takes a village. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.